Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 10. Last week, I continued the journey working through the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. In that installment, covering mostly places in Chapters 2 and 3, if you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm doing much of the same, beginning in chapter 3 and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. The first place this week is Mount Hermon, initially mentioned in the Bible in Deuteronomy 3, which reads, So at the time we took from the two kings of the Amorites the land beyond the Jordan, from the Wadi Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonese call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Singur. Obviously, a geographic mention used mainly as a landmark, though the alternate names do give a very small insight into neighboring kingdoms. This, at least as we presently consider it, isn't a single mountain peak, but instead is a mountain cluster located on what is today the border between Syria and Lebanon. And it's a mountain of note, with the highest peak in the cluster also serving as the highest point in Syria. The small range is at the very southern end of the larger range known as the Anti-Lebanon Mountains. The peaks in this range, the Anti-Lebanon, serve, for the most part, as the border between Lebanon and Syria. And, as for its name, it means nothing more than it sits opposite, when viewed from the valley between them, opposite and parallel to the Mount Lebanon range. As all of the national boundaries presently exist, the southern slopes of Hermon fall into the Golan Heights, inside the borders of Israel. And, this part is still high enough to have a seasonal ski resort, which may surprise you. It certainly did surprise me. But the range is really high, over 9,000 feet, which is over 2,800 meters, high enough that when the somewhat humid wind from the Mediterranean blows over it and up its slopes, the temperature drops and the water vapor condenses, leading to rain and snow. This abundant water was actually mentioned in Psalm 133. The snow melts and the rain flows into the water table, which eventually ends up percolating as natural springs. In years of excess, of course, the water remains on the surface and flows into wadis, wadis that then flow into the Jordan River and south to the Sea of Galilee. All of this has led to the region being rather agriculturally abundant, with crops like grapes and olives, along with trees such as pine, oak, and poplar. It should go without saying, but that usually doesn't stop me, that all of these national borders in the area are rather contentious, to the point that the UN maintains a buffer and observation point on Hermon between Syria and Israel, a place the troops manning it have dubbed the Hermon Hotel. The Hermon Range runs about 65 miles, 110 kilometers, with Mount Hermon itself, at least the highest point, just north of the geographic center of the range. The peak thought to be the Hermon referenced in Deuteronomy is actually three separate peaks, each roughly the same height and not terribly distant from each other. The history of the peaks date to earlier than Deuteronomy, with the first literature mention coming in the ancient Mesopotamian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh, 
thought to date to around 2100 BC. In this piece, Hermon was said to have split after Gilgamesh killed Humbaba, the guardian of the cedar forest. Think the cedars of Lebanon. One of the more widely available translations of the poem reads, The ground split open with the heels of their feet, as they whirled around in circles Mount Hermon and Lebanon split. A later Ugaritic text claims the mountain was where the Palace of Baal was located, at least one of the palaces of one of the Baals. Obviously, Moses mentioned it in Deuteronomy, in one of his last addresses to the Israelite people. It was also the place in 1 Chronicles 5 where Ephor, Ishi, Eliel, Uzriel, Jeremiah, Hodaviah, and Jadiel resided as the heads of their families, all in the territory earlier allotted to half the tribe of Manasseh. Psalm 42 mentions a people called the Hermonites, at least in the King James, presumed to be related to half the tribe of Manasseh or to people who were more native to the region. The other two translations I use mention the place in lieu of the people. In the book Song of Songs, sometimes called the Song of Solomon, in chapter 4, Hermon is mentioned in a manner that makes it seem remote and exotic. Then there's the non-canonical book of Enoch, attributed to Noah's great-grandfather. Of course, since it's not considered part of the Christian canon, it also isn't considered a reliable text. But it does mention Hermon, as the place where the watcher class of fallen angels descended to earth. It was on the mountain that these fallen angels swore they would take wives among the daughters of men, among other things. This story may be a derivative of the mountain also being attributed to the home of one of the Baals. Finally, there is a minority of religious researchers, a very small minority, that believes Mount Hermon is the same as the biblical Mount Sinai. And not only that, but they also believe that a battle between the northern tribes and ancient Egyptians occurred on its slopes, somewhere near the Jordan Valley or the Golan Heights. There are also scholars who think Hermon was the place where the transfiguration of Jesus occurred, though in the text of the New Testament, the place goes unnamed. On the summit, as well as on the slopes, stands several historic buildings. The summit, at least on one of the three summits, is a building made of stacked hewn stones. It's said this marks the spot where the fallen angels decided to take human wives, as told in Enoch. On other slopes, this one to the north, stands a Roman pagan temple thought to date to 242 AD. As you would correctly suspect, the history of the peak follows that of the region, though due to its relatively inhospitable winter weather, it tended to be unoccupied, so little history occurring on it. Fast forward thousands of years, and it was captured by Israel from Syria in the 1967 Six-Day War. Syria recaptured it six years later in the Yom Kippur War. They only held on to it for about four months before the Israelis took control of it again. After the war, and as part of the ceasefire agreement, the summit was returned to the Syrians, though the Israelis maintained control of the territory not too far downhill. In fact, the Israelis also control a nearby peak, utilized as an observation post 
and the highest point in the nation. And that's it for Mount Hermon. Next up in chapter 3 is a place called Seolka. Like many of the places in this final book of the Pentateuch, it's relatively unknown. In the text, it's said to mark the boundary of Bashan, thought to be the eastern boundary, at least before the Israelites defeated kings Og and Sidon. Joshua 12 would also mention that it was ruled by King Og of Bashan. Given this physical location, it's believed to have been part of Manasseh's allotment, since that divvying up included all the territory that Og had previously ruled. But do note the city was specifically listed. Later, this time in 1 Chronicles 5, it was recorded that the tribe of Gad controlled what had formerly been ruled by Og as far as Selaka. How to reconcile this? Over the centuries, the boundaries of the territory controlled by each tribe tended to move, and those cities that were located on the actual boundary would likely switch back and forth several times. It's thought, at least by some, that the location of the ancient Selica was in the region known modernly as Jabal el Druze, and the Druze of the name refers to the Druze people I briefly mentioned in the last episode. This region is a sub-region within the volcanic Argob, I also covered last week, which should tell you something about Salica. It was located in one of the small depressions strewn throughout the region, one of the few slightly human hospitable places in an otherwise unwelcoming region. And that's it for the tiny village of Salica. Stepping away from the places, I'll spend just a second, almost literally, on a set of people mentioned in Deuteronomy 3, and these people are the Geshirites. They are mentioned once in this book, a few times in Joshua, and a single time in 1 Samuel. In most of these, they are not mentioned alone, and tend to be paired up with the Philistines, the Macathites, the Gezerites, and the Amalekites. They are believed to have resided somewhere between Philistia and the Arabian Peninsula which doesn't really narrow anything down. About the only historical meaningful mention was in 1 Samuel, where we're told. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the landed settlements from Telum on the way to Shur, and on to the land of Egypt. David struck the land, leaving neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing, and came back to Achish. The outside record has no mentions of these people, so that's all that's really known about them. Just after the Geshurites are the Macathites. In this sense, it refers to the people from Acha. Though, do note, there are a handful of specific persons mentioned a number of times throughout the Old Testament with this name. Most of these mentions, though, are either from the same time period as Deuteronomy or later, so probably not the people mentioned in the Pentateuch. Instead, this nation of people likely took their name from Abraham's nephew, the son of his brother Nahar, listed in Genesis 22. Later in the Old Testament, the name became less gender-specific 
and was even the name of one of David's wives and the mother of his rebellious son, Absalom. One of Absalom's daughters would also be named Macha and would end up marrying Rehoboam, Solomon's successor. As for the place with the name and mentioned in Deuteronomy, it's sometimes rendered as Aram Makkah. This was a small Aramean kingdom that lay east of the Sea of Galilee. It too would be assigned to the tribe of Manasseh. In 2 Samuel 10, its unnamed king hired out his soldiers, and apparently himself personally, as mercenaries to the Ammonites as they fought King David. A total of about 1,000 soldiers, David and his troops would win the ensuing battles. It's likely that the city of Abel of Beth Makkah is either the same as the one mentioned in Deuteronomy or was renamed at some point to reflect its relationship to one of the people mentioned in the text. Since the opportunity may not arise again, I'll go ahead and give the history of this city its brief moment in the spotlight. The name, Abobeth Amaka, roughly translates to the meadow of the house of Maka. It's believed to be the same as the city of Abel Maim in 2 Chronicles 16. The place thought to be Tel Abelbeth Makkah is a large archaeological site located in the far north of the nation of Israel, very close to the city of Dan. This places it about as far north as you can go and remain in Israel. Its history dates back at least as far as the Bronze Age, which would mean if this is the same place mentioned in Deuteronomy, then it was settled before the Israelites arrived. It may have been mentioned in Egyptian hieroglyphics dating to the reign of Thutmose III, which would place it in the 15th century BC. Similar possible mentions can be found in the 14th century BC Armana letters. And this makes sense. It continued to be occupied through many of the eras that followed, the Iron Age, which included control by the tribes, then kingdoms of Israel. Next were the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, leading to the Byzantines. You know how it goes. It was located at the source of Nanao Lion, a river that eventually flows into the Jordan River. Of course, water made the city viable. What made it successful and relatively permanent was its vantage point overlooking the narrow northern portion of the Hula Valley, a valley rich in agriculture. From the valley and through the city ran roads into Syria and Lebanon and eventually to the coast. Water, agriculture, and trade, a winning combination. All of this in close enough proximity to names you should recognize, the Canaanites, the Hurrians, the Mentanians, and the Hittites, at least early on, then the Israelites, the Arameans, and the Phoenicians. Sometime during the Bronze Age, a wall around the city was built, like was common at that time in the region. These walls lasted well into the Iron Age, and at some point it included a fortress. Over time, older walls were replaced with newer ones, and the city grew and shrank with the varying economic tides. The city was mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, and it's these mentions that led to its accepted identification with the uncovered ruins. Most of these list it with other nearby places, making the triangulation of the site somewhat reliable. 
And both list, one in 1 Kings 15 and the other in 2 Kings 15. These places list it as being in the land of the tribe of the Naphtali, also making sense since they were allotted territory in the extreme north of the Promised Land. This is backed up by uncovered archaeological evidence from the site that's inscribed in Hebrew and dates to between the 10th and 9th centuries BC. The most telling and interesting mention in the Old Testament can be found in 2 Samuel 20. The passage relays what happened after a Benjaminite named Sheba ben Bikri attempted to foment a revolt against King David. Bikri fled to Abel of Beth Makkah, where Joab, David's general, chased him, then besieged the city. Here the Israelites threw up a siege ramp, and it stood against the rampart. The rampart is merely the city's walls. Joab's forces battered the wall to break it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, tell Joab, Come here, I want to speak to you. He came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. He answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in the old days, Let them inquire at Abel. And so they would settle a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, His head shall be thrown over the wall to you. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise plan, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, and all went to their homes, while Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Not a story you're likely to hear in Sunday school. One of the key phrases in the passage is when the unnamed woman says the city is both a city and a mother in Israel. This unusual phrase probably means it held either specific religious, political, or cultural status. Maybe all three. The passage also indicates that the city was in the far north of Israel, just like it is today. Throughout the 20th century, small-scale excavations took place on the tell, but the true large-scale digs, the ones yielding volumes of artifacts and then findings, did not begin in earnest until 2012. Among the earliest findings are a circular flask dating to the late Bronze Age, Hewn stones from earlier in the Bronze Age have also been uncovered. There is a stone wall, assumed to be from a fortress that overlooks the Hula Valley, in the main north-south road, a road that passed alongside the west of the wall. The wall is assumed to be from the Middle Bronze Age, though there were no uncovered artifacts that would allow a more precise dating. At other dig sites, pottery, jewelry, and silver objects from the Middle Bronze Age have been uncovered, all of these possibly dating to when the Israelites arrived on the scene. And that's it for Makkah. 
Next up is Machir, who in Deuteronomy 3 was given the region of Gilead. The man Machir was the son of Manasseh, making him the grandson of Joseph. Machir's son was named Gilead. We should have seen that coming. Actually, my take on it was the region was likely called something else prior to it being allotted to Machir, and the Gilead name became associated with it after that family settled there. The territory of Gilead and Bashan was previously occupied by the Amorites. It would come to be occupied by Manasseh, more specifically those descended from the man Machir, all making sense. There is another person named Machir in the Old Testament, this one the son of Amuel, and mentioned in the book of 2 Samuel in the ninth chapter. He too was a descendant of the other Machir, the grandson of Joseph. He was the guardian of Meribah, the son of Jonathan, until David assumed the role of guardian. Later, but in the same book, this Machir would aid David when he was fleeing Absalom, and that's it for Machir. The last place I'll cover this week is the city known as Kinnereth, in some translations rendered as Chinnereth. This city was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Do note that before it was called the Sea of Galilee, this lake was known as the Sea of Kinnereth, along with a few other names. But I'm not covering the lake today, as it was discussed in detail in Chapter 2, Episode 34, released over three years ago. The name of the place, and therefore the lake too, is thought to have been derived from a variety of trees that grow nearby, though the exact identification of species depends on who you ask. In the book of Joshua, we learn that the city was assigned to the tribe of Gad. In other places in the Old Testament, the name appears in the plural as Kinneroth. This is likely a reference to the single city, along with other regional villages that had a similar name. Villages like Mosheva Kinneret and Kuvasat Kinneret, both of which lay to the south, but still along the shores of the lake. Think of their names as similar to a suffix that helps to identify their location. And by the time the New Testament was written, the city's name had changed to Genesaret. It was here in Luke 5 where Jesus first met Simon Peter. In the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, Jesus healed the sick there too. And that's essentially it for the biblical mentions. The outside record yields a bit more insight. At the Egyptian temple of Karnak, and as part of the hieroglyphs associated with Thutmose III, the same pharaoh I mentioned earlier, who lived in the 15th century BC, well, in these hieroglyphs, the city is named. It merited a mention in the Babylonian Talmud, and by Josephus, the 1st century AD Roman Jewish historian. They both associated the city with the lake. Josephus also noted the rich agricultural bearing soil found in the area of the city. In this region, a couple of ancient tales have been uncovered, excavation sites that yield the usual artifacts, inscribed pottery being among the most insightful. One of these is presumed to be the site of the fortified bronze and Iron Age city of Kinneret. In a biblical geographic sense, it's located essentially halfway between Capernaum and Magdala, cities whose names you should also recognize 
due to their New Testament residents and visitors. The archaeological location was situated on an important trade route, and like Beth Abel Maka, it was located on a hill which provided a view of anyone approaching, in this case from the plain of Genosart, which lay to the south. Excavations of the tell began in 2002 and are presently ongoing, and that's Kinneret and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the journey through the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.